That was a good one, Brother Renfro. I like that. That's good. Ladies and gentlemen, so glad that you made your way out tonight to this assembly. And if you are visiting with us, we thank you for uh, being with us tonight, uh, spending some of your time with us. And we hope that you'll be rewarded. We hope you'll be benefited. We hope you'll enjoy the opportunity to study from God's Word. If you have your Bibles with you, we'd encourage you to check those because we want to make sure that what is proclaimed is indeed God's Word. And for the members, thank you for being here. It's your duty to be here, but we thank you nonetheless and hope that you also are looking forward to an opportunity to be encouraged by God's Word. Just wanted to say a special thanks to the Allen family, uh, Kristen and Bryant. Uh, we had an opportunity to spend some time with them this afternoon. They invited us over, my family, for lunch, and we just had the best time. And I have to say, I'm, I'm just so impressed that with all the things that they have going on in their lives, that they would take the time to open up their home to show hospitality to me and my family. We really appreciate that. We had a great time. The food was delicious, and the company and conversation were even better. And I. I'm amazed when I think about the attitude that they have. You know, there is, amidst all this chaos, there is peace in their hearts. There's peace in the heart of Kristen, peace in the heart of Brian, peace in the heart of Riley and Reese. And it's just amazing to me. And I want to thank you so very much from the bottom of my heart for what you did. Uh, Riley and Reese were the consummate hosts for my children. Uh, they had such a wonderful time that when we announced it was time for them to go, uh, the children said, we're good, we'll just stay here. And I had to explain to them, no, they probably want you to go. It's time to leave. <laughs> but we appreciate so very much the time that we spent. I understand I'll be with uh, Mark and Cindy uh, Delt tonight. And the scouting report on Cindy's culinary skills is pretty good. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, ask me Monday night privately whether she lives up to the hype. We'll see that. But anyway, as is a Kevin Clark tradition, let me start out with this. The young man says, I'm feeling lost. The young lady says, lost? Question mark. The young man says, Obi-Wan and the council don't trust me. The young lady says, they trust you with your lives or their lives. The young man says, something's happened. I'm not the Jedi I should be. I want more. And I know that I shouldn't. Revenge of the Sith, Anakin to Padme. And I always have to have an obscure reference to a Star Wars film somewhere in my sermons. But that, that phrase has really stayed with me for years. I've wanted to build a sermon off of that. The acknowledgement, I'm not the Jedi that I should be. Again, don't care if you know about Jedi, but whatever it is, here's what you know. You know that he knows that there's a standard for what he's supposed to be. And he has done an honest self-assessment of himself in comparison to that standard. And he has found that he is wanting. He has found shortcomings. He has found deficiencies. And he candidly announces, I'm not what I ought to be. I do not satisfy the standard. I want things I should not want. I desire things I should not desire. I'm not what I should be. And I want to borrow that concept for a spiritual application and ask you this question, these series of questions. Have you ever felt, I'm just not the Christian that I should be? I'm not the student of the Bible that I should be. 
I'm not the teacher of the gospel that I should be. I'm not the ambassador of Christ to uh, my fellow servants or fellow uh, workers or fellow students or fellow uh, neighbors or fellow family members, whoever, whatever your circle is, that I'm not what I should be. Have you ever thought... I don't resist temptation the way that I should. I don't have the strength of will. I'm not resisting Satan as I should. Have you ever thought over and over again, I'm making the same mistakes. I'm not progressing. I'm being beset by the same sins over and over again. Have you ever thought, you know, I'm not spiritually minded the way that I mean. I'm carnally minded. I'm so distracted with secular concerns, with the cares and the concerns of this world. I'm not thinking about heaven like I should. I'm not thinking about spiritual things as I should. Have you ever thought, my prayer life is anemic. My prayer life is not what it ought to be. It's a simple mumbling of rehearsed and memorized phrases before my meals and before I go to bed, but there's no richness there. There's no fervency there. There's no earnest there. Have you ever felt these things? Have you ever felt that I'm not the Christian that I should be? I certainly have. I certainly have. And we want to talk about when you find yourself in that situation, when you find yourself that when you've honestly evaluated, you're lacking. What do you do about that? What do you do? How do you address that? One thing we know, we can't stay in that position. Why? Because our souls are in jeopardy. The thing, there's an urgency to when you recognize this condition, you can't just say, well, I'll get to it down the road. I'll get to it one day. Why? Because you never know. When the Lord's going to come back. Do you think about that every day? Do you think about, you know, this is the day that the Lord might come back. And if the Lord were to come back, am I ready? I don't know if we always think about that. I think sometimes we get so caught up in the rat race of life. And I got to do this and I got to do that. And it just never dawns on us that this is the day that the Lord might come. Or what about our own mortality? Could this be the day? that we die? How many people have died through car wrecks or aneurysm or something, a sudden heart attack, and they didn't wake up thinking this is the day, but it could be. And so there's an urgency to this. If you recognize that I'm not the Christian that I should be, you've got to do something about that now. That's not something you can put off weeks from now, months from now. I'll get to it. There may not be any getting to it. There may be an abrupt halting to your life, either by the Lord's second coming or your own death. And so, the first thing I want to suggest to you, and we saw it in the example of Anakin, is this. We need to examine ourselves on a regular basis. We need to examine ourselves from a spiritual standpoint. We need to take spiritual inventory of ourselves. We need to evaluate ourselves. What are our spiritual strengths? What are our spiritual weaknesses? What are the things the devil does to trip us up? And we know them, or we should. And what are we doing to fortify those weaknesses that we have? Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5. Am I the Christian that I should be? 2 Corinthians 13.5. 2 Corinthians 13.5. The Bible says this, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are dis? Qualified. Wait a minute. 
Wait a minute, Paul. Now, you're talking to Christian people. You're talking to people that are baptized believers. You're talking to people that obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why are you talking about examining myself? I don't need to examine myself. I obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm in the right church. I'm in the Lord's church. I worship on a regular basis. I support the work of my local congregation. What's there to examine? I'm in the right church. I'm on my way to heaven. It's an autopilot, right? No, no, no. He's talking to Christian people. He says, you examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Which tells me something. That just because we've been saved by obeying the gospel, that doesn't necessarily mean that our salvation is just guaranteed and it's going to be that way no matter what we say or do or think. That there must be the possibility of losing your salvation. There must be the possibility of falling out of the faith. Otherwise, there's no need to say, examine yourselves. Whether, that's a question, whether you are in the faith. And so the first thing is, is that just because one has been saved doesn't mean you're always going to be saved. You've heard that. The religious world loves that. Once saved, always saved. But there are just too many passages in the Bible that's that inconsistent with, like this one. The once saved, always saved person scratches their head and says, what are you talking about, Paul? I'm saved. That's it. We're done. And Paul says, no, you're not done. You need to examine yourselves and see whether you're in the faith. But then again, what do we examine ourselves by? It's the Word of God. We break out the Word of God. We lay out the Word of God. We study it without being biased, without having filters. And then we lay our lives right next to the Word of God. And we start making comparisons. And when we start to learn about ourselves and we see shortcomings and see deficiencies, what do we do? We correct those things with the power that God gives us to. You see that? Examine yourselves. Do you do that? Do we do that? Do you spend some... It's quiet time, folks. We're too busy. Too busy, too much noise, too much distraction, too much this hustle and bustle. It takes quiet time to examine one's life against the Scriptures and ask some very pointed questions. Am I right with the Lord? Am I controlling my mouth the way that I should? Am I the student of the Bible that I should be? Am I controlling my anger the way that I should? Am I controlling my emotions the way that I should? Do I know enough about God's Word as I should? Do I know enough to teach those who are around me? Those in my school, those in my workplace, those in my family. Am I being hospitable to my brothers and sisters in Christ? Am I helping out the poor? Do I care about the poor? Do I have a love for God? Do I have a love for my fellow man? All these are questions that we need to examine in the light of the Scriptures and be honest with ourselves. I love Hebrews 4.12 on this point. Turn over there. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. First thing we want to do is to examine us ourselves as to whether we are in the faith. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the Word of God is what? Living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. Now listen to this phrase. And is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Have you thought about that? That the Bible reveals the thoughts and the intents of the heart. If we're doing self-examination, it's not enough for I just say, ah, I think I'm a pretty good guy. Ask your wife, am I a pretty good guy? I'm a pretty good guy. Fine. Okay. No, no. Examine the scriptures. Because the scriptures will tell you in an unbiased way who you really are. And if you've done it at all with any seriousness, you can confess, as I can, sometimes you don't like what you see. The Bible exposes us. 
And doesn't that make sense? Because the very next verse says what in Hebrews chapter 4? And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Lord knows us and his word exposes us. If we'll be honest, read that word of God. Haven't you read the word of God and you read a passage? And again, you're not reading it from an academic standpoint. You're not reading it just to memorize. You're not reading it just to have knowledge. You're reading it with a practical bent. How do I apply this? And you begin looking at yourself and looking at the scriptures and say, oh, so that's, that's what love is. I haven't been doing that. Oh, so that's what forgiveness is. I, I got to work on that some more. Oh, so that's what holiness is. I got to spend some more time. Oh, that's what purity is. I got to spend some more. Oh, that's what it means to have a fervent prayer life. I got to do. You see, it's a practical application. How am I doing on all of these measures that we see in the scriptures? Do we read the scriptures that way? Some people just read the scriptures. uh, I'm feeling bad, so I need to feel good. So let me just read the scriptures. And I'm not saying that there's not encouragement there. I'm not saying that there's not exhortation there. But I'm also saying we need to read the scriptures with a practical bent. Are we what God would have us to be? And if not, we need to make corrections. Don't be like the man who observes himself in the mirror, as James says, and walks away and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. The purpose of looking in the mirror is to make the necessary corrections. And we need to be honest with ourselves. And when we see that we're deficient, when we see that we fall short, when we see things that are ungodly in ourselves, let's do something about it. So the first thing we want to do to avoid being the Christian that uh, we shouldn't be is to examine ourselves. But let me give you the second one. This is very, very important. The second thing we need to do is this. Develop and maintain a thankful heart to God and glorify Him. Let's say that again. Develop and maintain a thankful heart to God and glorify Him. Turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll look at verses 18 through 23. Romans the first chapter, verses 18 through 23. Develop a thankful heart to God and glorify Him. I'm not the Christian I should be. Well, develop a thankful heart to God and maintain that and glorify Him. Romans 1, 18-23. Romans the first chapter, verses 18-23. through 23. The Bible says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are what clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Now listen to this. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, uh, changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Verse 24, let's keep going. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And you keep on reading the rest of Romans 1, and you see this terrible parade of horrible sins. Just all the ungodliness one can contemplate. And what's interesting about this passage is this question. Where does all that sin come from? Where does it originate? Where does it start? How do you get down this dark road of depravity? And Romans 1 just told us that, right? 
He said, look, first of all, God has shown us his invisible attributes. Do you realize that? If you never see a page of scripture, you are accountable for knowing that God exists. That's what the invisible attributes are. They're clearly seen. Psalm 19 talks about the heavens declare the glory of God. No one with any honesty whatsoever can exist in this world and not acknowledge there must be a God. And he says, when you have that knowledge, that makes you accountable and you're supposed to do something with that knowledge. You know what you're supposed to do? You're supposed to be thankful to God and you're supposed to glorify him. And that is the seed of sin right there when we don't do that. When we know that God exists, but we're not thankful, we take Him for granted, we're not appreciative, we don't glorify Him, and we start down this path of depravity. That's where it all starts, folks. It's an attitude. You can't fix sin by just telling people, stop it. (laughs) Stop it. Don't do that. Don't engage in profanity. Don't engage in fornication. Don't engage in lying. You're missing the point. The point is, get your attitude towards God right first. Then we can do those other things. That's why we taught this morning. What was the first commandment? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Attitude matters. Attitude matters. I worry sometimes that we try to reduce Christianity to a bunch of checklists. Don't do this and do this. And we forget. It's about a whole attitude, a whole orientation. How do you feel about God? That's what he's telling us here. We need to be thankful. If you think, this really is the easiest of the things we're going to talk about. It should be. It should be. What's that old song, Count Your Many Blessings? Do you ever just think about all the ways that God has blessed us? Look at Acts 17 again. I know we read the whole sermon on Mars Hill, but let's uh, pick out a couple pieces that are relevant to this point. Acts 17 again. Acts 17, let's look at verses 24 and 25. God who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Now listen to verse 25. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he need anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. What has God done for us? What has God done for us that we should be the least bit thankful? Right there the passage says, he gives to us life, breath, and all things. Have you thought about that our very existence, our very lives, are a gift? That's what Acts 17 says, that God gave us life. God brought us into existence. God gave us creation. He he gave us the very breath that we breathe. The fact that we're here tonight, you're listening, you exist. It's because God did that. He gives to all life, breath, and all things. The food that we have to sustain our bodies, the roofs that we had over our head, the places that we stay, the jobs that we have, all these things. We give God the credit. He gives these things. He makes these things possible. He reminded the Israelites before they went over to the land of Canaan, hey, you're going to get over there. You're going to have these houses you didn't build and these wheels you didn't uh, dig and these vineyards you didn't plant. And you're going to get over there and say, whoa, look what I've done. I'm pretty impressive. And he's like, no, I gave you the ability to do all that. The ability to get wealth came from me. You can't do anything unless you do it with the ability that I gave you as God. And so isn't that easy if we would just take some time and think about all the ways that God has blessed us. I mean, it just, it just staggers the imagination when you actually sit down and begin to tick off all the things that God does and has done for us. And when we do that, what does that do? It cultivates in our heart a sense of appreciation, right? And when you have a sense of appreciation, what do you want to do for the one that you have appreciation for? You want to please that person, right? How many of us have people in our lives 
that just did extraordinary things for us, made great sacrifices for us, committed time to us, mentored us, developed us. I hope for many of you it was your parents. And we see this very concept in 1 Timothy 5 where the, God tells us that as our parents get older and they have needs, we ought to what? Repay our parents with piety. What does that mean? I'm thankful for what my parents did for me and now that they are in need, it ought to be an easy thing for me to repay them, to take care of them as they took care of me when I was in my formative years. Do you have any coaches or any teachers that you can look back and you can say, you know, I'm so glad that that teacher took a special interest in me. I'm so glad that that coach took a special interest in me. I mean, we all have those people, right? People that if they were to call tonight and say, I need you to be three or four hours from here tomorrow, you would do it. Why? You're so thankful. You're so appreciative of what they did for you. Now, if we can understand that on limited basis in terms of coaches and teachers and parents, and I'm not in any way discounting what they've done, but I think we'd all agree that whatever they've done pales into comparison to what God has done for us. And so if we are thankful to God, think how much easier it is for us to be faithful to Him. Because we know that pleases Him, right? So I think that the problem is, remember I said develop and maintain a thankful heart. We have these moments of lucidity, these moments of epiphany, these moments where we think, yes, God has done these wonderful things for me. And we feel appreciative and we're on a high and right then and there we'd do anything for the Lord. But then that trails off over time, right? Because we get busy. And we get distracted. And we're not thinking first and foremost about what the Lord has done for us. And we, we go days without doing that. And all of a sudden, then it becomes a struggle to be faithful. It becomes a struggle to resist the temptations. It becomes a struggle to read the Word of God like we should. It becomes a struggle to worship and assemble as we should. It becomes a struggle to pray like we should. Why? We're just not thankful anymore. See, it's not a static thing, folks. We need to continuously dwell upon and think about what God has done for us. And yes, we need to glorify Him. Did you catch that? Not only was the problem they weren't thankful, we didn't glorify God. Do you glorify God? Do you give Him the glory? And friends, we need to tell people. We need to tell others how we feel about the Lord, how great He is. And we got to get out of our system this idea of, no, 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 we don't do that. <laughs> That's these groups over here, and they get all crazy and everything. And I'm not talking about craziness, but I'm telling you this, we're not going to be reactionary, folks. I don't care what anybody else is doing. We're going to glorify the Lord. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. That's what we ought to do. There's nothing wrong and everything right about glorifying God. Do we do it? What a wonderful God He is. And we have so many things to glorify Him. You know, we talked about the physical things. We hadn't even talked about the real, the real reason why we should glorify God. Look over in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. Paul understood this. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 17. 1 Timothy, the first chapter, verses 12 through 17. We need to develop and maintain a thankful heart to God and glorify Him. Paul says, now I want you, as you listen to this, understand just how thankful Paul is for the spiritual blessings that he has through Christ. It just oozes off the page. And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy. Why? Because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love, which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying. Listen to this. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show 
all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. Now to the king, listen to this, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be what? Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Is that a man who's thankful to God? (laughs) This man says, you know what? I am so thankful to God because he put me into the ministry. Can you believe it? Here I am. I was a guy who was trying to do everything he could, could stamp out the church. I was persecuting Christians. I was the one who was consenting to the death of Stephen simply because he dared the name and name of Christ. I was the one who was making havoc of the church. I was the one who was throwing Christian men and women into prison because they dared to name the name of Christ. I was the one that when there was a vote taken as to whether Christians get what put to death, my hand went up. That man who was a blasphemer, an insolent man, a persecutor, that man, he said, that's me. And guess what? Despite all of that, I'm saved. And despite all of that, I'm a useful vessel for Christ. And you know what that means? He says, I'm thankful. I'm so thankful to that great God. You, know, you can see the appreciation when he talks about sinners. What does he say about himself? Just, just dripping with humility. He says, of all the sinners out there, I'm the worst. He said, I'm the worst. And look what God has done with me. And if God can do that with me, what can he do with you? What can he do with you? That's the point. And did you also see with that thankfulness and that gratitude and that appreciation, at the end, he says, praise God. Glory to God. This great God who's done so much. Have you thought about the fact that we have been saved from the fires of hell? Have we thought about that? You know, we use the, 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 the word salvation. We use, use the word saved, but it doesn't mean anything unless you ask the question, from what? What are we saved from? You've got to underscore that in your mind. And what we're saved from is eternal separation from God. That is hell. And that's where we were going. But for the gospel of Jesus Christ. But for the cross. But for grace. But for mercy. That's what we're... And we've got to appreciate that. You know, when people are first saved, there is this excitement, there's this exuberance, there is just wonderful emotion about what has just happened. But what tends to happen, not always, what tends to happen is over time, there seems to be a waning of the zeal. And there's a lack of appreciation, almost to the point of just taking it for granted. Yeah, I'm saved, I'm a Christian, but what's the big deal? It's a huge deal. When I read 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, that's not a man who took his salvation for granted. And we ought not take it for granted either. We ought to be thankful to God every single day that there's the hope of eternal life for us because none of us deserve it. None of us deserve that. Do you let that sink in? We have sinned, folks. All of us here have sinned. We've all transgressed the Word of God. And what we deserve is hellfire for that. But God said, no, I'm going to intervene. I'm going to give up my son to give you a chance to be reconciled to me forever. Isn't that enough to be thankful to God for? You know, that's why I said this ought to be the easiest thing to do. If you can't do this, what's wrong with us? If you can't step back and think about all the things God has done and be thankful. And let me say this to you. That's important to have that attitude because, you know, the temptation is to jump to things like studying the Scriptures, right? So, I'm not the Christian I should be. Study the Scriptures. There's a certain amount of truth to that. In fact, it's the next point we're going to make. But before we get to that, before we get to that, that it's not enough to just study the Scriptures. You have to study the Scriptures with the right heart. Let me prove that to you. John 5, 38 through 40. John 5, 38 through 40. It's not enough to simply study the Scriptures. 
You have to do so with the right heart, which is why we talked about developing and maintaining a thankful heart to God and glorifying Him. John chapter 5, verses 38 through 40. John chapter 5, verses 38 through 40. Jesus says, But you do not have His word abiding in you, because whom He sent, Him you do not believe. Now listen to verse 39. You search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. What did he say to them? He says, you search the Scriptures. What is that, folks? That's Bible study. Remember I said it's not enough just to buy. He said, you study the Bible. <laughs> you're searching the Scriptures. You're spending the time. But you know what? You missed the point. Because those scriptures that you think you have eternal life in, you know what they bear witness to? They bear witness to me, and you reject me. You miss the point. Bible study with a bad heart does not cure the problem of I'm, the, I'm not the Christian that I should be. It's got to be a good heart, the right heart, a heart of appreciation for God, thankfulness for God, wanting to know God, wanting to please God, wanting to know the truth. There are lots of people who study that. There are professors who study the Bible and know it inside out. And they're no more saved than a man on the street that's never seen the Scriptures. Why? Not apply it. Don't have the right heart. God says, or Jesus says here, your words, God's Word's not in your heart. You spend all that time searching the Scriptures. And so we need to be careful. I'm not saying this is not a discouragement from studying the Scriptures. Absolutely we need to study the Scriptures. It's important. But just make sure as you crack open that book that you have the right heart and the right attitude, that you're honest. That you sit at the feet of God and let Him teach with no preconceived ideas and preconceived notions. Whatever the Lord says, that's what we're going to do. And that's why it's so important to develop and maintain a thankful heart to God and glorify Him. But, as I said, we were getting to this point. We do need to stay in the Bible. We do need to stay in the Bible. Because the Bible is just not any book. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. We do need to stay in the Bible. And I want to emphasize that. Not sporadic Bible study. Not occasional. Not periodic. We need to stay in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 14-17. 2 Timothy the third chapter, verses 14-17. But you, talking to Timothy by inspiration, Paul that is. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are what? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, Thoroughly equipped for every good work. Why do we need to stay in the Bible? Why is it so important to study the Bible? Why is it so important to meditate on the Bible? Why is it so important to know and understand the Bible? Because it's not just any old book. It is the inspired Word of God. And he says to Timothy, you know what these scriptures can do? They can make you wise unto salvation through what? Faith in Christ Jesus. So there's your attitude, right? You've got to have the right attitude, the right heart, not the heart of the Pharisees, not searching the Scriptures and missing the point. But if you've got the right heart, he says, these Scriptures can make you wise into salvation. They are, they are profitable for instruction, for correction, for rebuke. Why? What's the ultimate aim? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, we're ready to do the work that God has, us, has for us to do, you know? The Scriptures do that for us. If we have the mind of God revealed, why would we not spend time in the book? And we've got to stay in the book. We've got to stay in the book. Why? It's not like riding a bike. It's not like riding. You, you learn how to ride a bike, right? 
And it might have been 10, 15, 20 years since you last rode a bike. And you go out there and you pick up that bicycle and you know how to do it. Now, your legs might be a little creakier and maybe a little more painful for you. But you know, and even though you hadn't done it for 10, 15 years, and some people seem to think Bible knowledge is that way. Bible understanding is that way. That, oh, I can do it and I did it intentionally for my formative years. And I did it as a high school student. I did it as a college student. But now I'm an adult and I'm busy. don't have a lot of time. So I can just coast on accumulated knowledge. Is that the way it works? Is Bible knowledge static? Does it stay? Does it plateau? You reach a level and it's just always, no, it's not that way. How do I know that? Hebrews 5, Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Look over there real quick. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Bible knowledge is not static. We're either progressing or we're regressing. Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. After the writer of Hebrews says that he had more to say about Jesus as the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. said, you can't understand it because you become dull of hearing. He says this, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he's a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Did you notice what he said there? Here are people that obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. They had to have a certain amount of knowledge to do that. And they had been in the faith long enough that they should have accumulated enough knowledge, enough understanding through study of God's Word that they would be able to teach others. But were they? No. He says, not only are you not able to teach anybody else, he said, you need to be taught again the very first principles. Wait a minute, but they've already learned it back then. You know what I said? It's not static. It's not plateau. Either you're progressing or you're regressing. Have you noticed that? You don't have to raise your hand. But have you noticed that? That if you're in the Scriptures for a period of time, man, recollection is sharp. Understanding is there. You know where stuff is. You can get to stuff. But let you go a little while without studying the Bible like you should. You're a little rusty. And sometimes it's harder to call to mind some of those scriptures and know what they say and where they're at and where the books are. Have you noticed that? There's a correlation between the time that we put into it and our understanding. And it's not static. We've got to continue to grow, continue to develop, never get complacent, never get satisfied with your biblical knowledge. There's always more to learn. You can study the scriptures for 100 years. There's still more to learn. So there's no reason to get complacent. You need to push yourself. We need a steady diet of God's Word. What's that going to do? That's going to help us be the Christians. Because what do we learn from that? Well, first of all, what comes from studying God's Word with the right heart? Faith. Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And we know from Hebrews eleven six, 6, it's impossible to please God without faith. So if I want to please God, I've got to have faith. Well, how do I get more faith? The more I'm in the Word. How does that work? Because the more you're in the Word, you can see things that cannot be seen with physical eyes. The more you're in the Word, the more real heaven becomes. The, and we'll talk more about that tonight, uh, tomorrow night. And the more you're in the Word, the more real hell becomes. The more you're in the Word, the more real God becomes. The more you're in the Word, the more real Jesus becomes. The more you're in the Word, the more the crucifixion becomes real to you. The more you're in the Word of God, the more the resurrection becomes real to you. The more you're in the Word of God, the more Judgment Day becomes real to you. All these things become more real the more you spend time with God's Word because you're building faith in those things. A lot of times we look at the Scriptures and we read these Old Testament stories and the great feats of faith. We think about Abraham with Isaac and we think about David and Goliath and the children of Israel with Jericho and we think, wow, that's an amazing amount of faith. But we don't have that kind of faith today. You better. 
you better have the same kind of faith that it took for David to step out there and fight Goliath, because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the kind of faith that you will make life-changing decisions based on that. See, here's the problem. If we don't have that kind of faith, there's only so much persecution we're going to take. If we don't have that kind of faith, there's only so many sacrifices we're going to make, because we just don't believe enough. It's just not real enough for us. It's got to be real, so real, it's as if you could see it with our own physical eyes. And that comes from faith. And again, just like Bible knowledge, faith is not static. Faith is not static. We know that from Abraham's life, right? I mean, you have that great Genesis 22, great act of faith, willing to sacrifice his son. That's also the same man that kind of pulled a fast one about his wife <laughs> to avoid being killed, right? And he had no reason for that because God had said, you're going to have this son. Well, if God said that, I've got to be around to have the son, so I'm fine. But his faith faltered somewhat. And so that tells me faith is not static. I need to keep a regular dose of God's Word in my life. Because if I don't, what does Hebrews 3, 12-13 say? Beware lest they're developing you in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So it is possible for us to develop an evil heart of unbelief if we're not having a steady dose of those Scriptures. We've made this point before. Any one of us here can fall away. All it takes is not being exposed to God's Word. Let me give you a third point. We need to spend more time in prayer. We need to spend more time in prayer. If you're not the Christian you ought to be, it's probably because you're not praying the way that you should. And you know what, how do we normally pray a lot of times? And I'm guilty of it, just went through a period. There's a lot of prayer over the last three weeks. You know, when, when, when we're in over our heads, when we feel like we're lost, when we feel like we're overwhelmed, when we feel like we just can't do it, we're at our wits end, a lot of prayer was offered by Kevin Clark the last three weeks. God, I can't do this. I need your help. And I'm not in any way discouraging that kind of thing. But here's the problem. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17 says pray always. Pray without ceasing. It didn't say just pray when you're in a jam. Just pray when something hard's going on. Just pray when somebody's sick. Just pray when you're sick. Just pray when somebody is going through something tragic. That's not what it says. It says we ought to pray always. Luke 18, 1 through 8. Turn over there. Luke 18, 1 through 8. Luke chapter 18, 1 through 8. The Lord expects us to pray Always, not just when we're in a jam, not just when we're trying to get his help to get out of a difficult situation. Jesus says, Luke 18, 1 through 8, then he spoke, he, Jesus, a parable to them. And this is, I love it when it's just signposted like this. What's the purpose of this parable? That men always ought to pray and not lose heart. Now the parable, saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God, nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of God comes, will he really find faith on the earth? What's the point of that parable? Men ought to pray always. Only when I'm in, hell, uh, in uh, bad situations. Only when I'm in jeopardy. Only when I need something. No, men ought to pray always. And Philippians 4, 6-7 tells us something about the attitude that we need to have when we pray. Now think about this. Relationships are built on communication, right? And it's hard to be close to somebody unless you spend some time with them communicating. And it needs to be a two-way street. 
If you go for long periods of time without communicating, guess what? You're not going to be that close with that person. On the, uh, the corollary, that is, if you spend a lot of time communicating, you're going to be closer. How does God communicate with us? Bible study, the Word. How do we communicate with God? Prayer. So if I'm not doing those things on a regular basis, studying the Bible, listening to what God has to say, and praying, expressing myself to God, is it any wonder why I'm not the Christian I ought to be? <laughs> is there any wonder why I don't feel close to the Lord? Is there any wonder why I'm struggling with the same old sins over and over again, falling back into these addictive behaviors? Is that, is that surprising to anybody? Should it be? But notice what it says in Philippians 4, 6, and 3 about the attitude we ought to have. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by what? By prayers, what we're talking about, and supplication. I like this phrase. With thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. The point I want to make is this. As we pray to God, we pray to Him being thankful for all the things that He's done. And I think sometimes we, we lose this point. Sometimes God is almost like this genie in a bottle. I just rub it a couple times and whatever I want, I ask, and that's it. Just give me, give me, give me. Have you ever had relationships like that? One-sided relationships? I remember in college I had a relationship, uh, when I say relationship, just friendship, uh, with a young lady, and she didn't have a car, and I had a car. And every time she called me, it was never just, hey, how you doing? Just want to check on you. How are your classes going? How's everything going uh, with your extracurricular activities? Every time she called me, I knew this, like clockwork, every time she called me, because she needed a ride. She needed to go somewhere. That's all it was. And she would call me and call me and call me, and it gets to the point where you kind of get, get tired of that. The communication is just, I want, I want, I want. There's never, I'm going to give. There's never, can I help you with something? There's never, you know, I really appreciate all that you do. Can I do something for you? Now, a lot of us treat God that way. One time we talk to God, I want, I want, I want, I want. How about giving something back to God? How about giving some glory? How about giving some thanksgiving? How about expressing how you feel about God? Do we do that in our prayers? I mean, it's a two-way thing, right? We're not just gimme, gimme, gimme. We want to praise God. We want to extol Him. We want to let Him know how much we appreciate, how much He's done for us. We don't want to take God for granted at any time. That's what meaningful prayer is, with a spirit of thanksgiving for all that God has done for us. Do we do that? Let me give you another, another antidote to avoid becoming the Christian that says, I'm not the Christian I need to be. We need to faithfully assemble with the saints. We need to faithfully assemble with the saints, folks. Do you, it's such an incredible blessing when we all come together like this and we hear spiritual things taught and we sing spiritual songs of praise to God and thereby edify each other in the process and we lift up our voices in unison in prayer to God and we spend time either before or after services talking about spiritual things, learning about our respective fights with the devil and the work that we're doing with God. You know how encouraging that is or should be? But guess what? If you're not here, you don't get that encouragement. And guess what else? If you're not here, you're not giving that encouragement. You need to faithfully assemble with the saints. Look at Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. Hebrews, the 10th chapter, verses 24 to 25. You want to avoid being the kind of Christian that said, I'm not the Christian I ought to be. Then be here. Show up. Hebrews 10, 24 through 25. The Bible says, and let us consider one another. In order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together, as is the matter of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more, as you see the day approaching. What do we do as we come together? We stir one another up to love and good works. We need that. But what's the first thing we do sometimes? We go through the least bit of conflict, and we stop coming. <laughs> the very opposite of what we need. 
We need more encouragement. We need more hugs. We need more prayers. We need more encouraging words. Where is that to be found? Well, one of the places is when we come together and assemble as we should, if we faithfully assemble. Let me ask you this. When you come to services, how do you, how do you view that? Is it just drudgery? It's something I have to do. You know, if I don't do it, Brother Bob, Brother Simon, I, I, Brother Alan, they'll be on my case. Or it's just tradition. You know, if I don't do it, my parents are going to say something to me about it. It's just something I have to, it's my duty, it's my responsibility. Is that how we look? Or do we, with excitement, just eager anticipation, this is a spiritual oasis. All week, all week I've been fighting. I've been battling the forces of Satan. And I get to come here with my fellow soldiers, my fellow warriors, and get re-energized so I can go back onto the field and take the fight to Satan. Is that the way you feel about it? But see, the only way you can feel about that is you got to be doing some some work. (laughs) Are you doing work in the field? See, if you're one of those sideline Christians, I mean, you're on the bench. You don't feel that way. Why? Because you're not doing anything. But if you're active in the Lord's work and you're working hard and you're leaving it all on the field, you can't wait to get to assembly to be built up. And haven't you been, I I know you've had this, this instance. I've had this. It's a Wednesday night. You're tired. (laughs) You're worn out. And you think, boy, I sure could just lay down and go to bed. I just can barely keep my eyes open and I just don't feel up to this. And, but you go, you go. And you come here and you sing songs of praise. You engage in public prayer. You listen to God's word being taught or preached. You talk to fellow Christians about their walk with God. And you come away more energized, not only spiritually, but physically. Where did that come from? The exhortation, the encouragement of your fellow Christians coming together, worshiping. Folks, we need this. We need this. And we, we need, Brian and I were talking about this, we need to be reminded of things we've already known and learned. Somebody says, well, man, I've been to church all my life. I've with all these gospel sermons and all these classes. I, don't, I already know that. I don't need that. Yes, you do need it. Peter thought you needed it. Look at 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, verses uh, 15 through 17. 2 Peter chapter 1, I'm sorry. Verses 12 through 15. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. Listen to what Peter says. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent to stir you up by what? Reminding you. Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. It was so important to Peter that people who already knew and were established in the present truth. So he's not talking about rookies. (laughs) He's talking about veterans in the faith. He said, you just need to be reminded. And I'm reminding you, and he says, you know, this is so important that I'm even going to make provisions so that after I die, you're still going to be reminded. We need reminder teaching and preaching. How many times have you had this happen to you? You come to services, and Brother Bob or somebody else preaches something, and, and, and the information that's conveyed, you knew that. You knew that, you've heard that, but it stirred you up because it had gone to the recesses of the mind and it brought it forward. I know that, but I forgot about that. I don't think about that. And he brought it forward. We need that. As human beings, we need a steady diet of God's word. 
As many times as we can get it, we need to take advantage of that. That's why we go to gospel meetings. That's why we have gospel meetings. That's why we go to Bible studies. As many times as we can expose ourselves to God's Word, that's a benefit. That's a blessing. We ought to hunger for that. We ought to crave for that. It's not, I have to do this. The person we have to talk to about assembling, that person's got a heart problem. I want to be with God's people. I want to study God's Word. I want to hear more spiritual things. I know how this fight that we have with the devil, the inner man, the outer man, the carnal man, the spiritual man, I need as much help in that battle as I can get. And I can get that here. I can get that from y'all. I can get that from the Bible teachers. I can get that from the preaching. I can get that from the song leaders. Why would we not want to come here? If you truly are the Christian that you should not be, if you truly don't have a desire for God like you need to be, if you truly are not spiritually minded, if you're carnally minded, if you're distracted with secular concerns, if you don't pray the way that you should, you don't study, we, we need to start by examining ourselves. Where are we? And after we examine ourselves, we need to develop, maintain that thankful heart to God and glorify Him. And yes, we need to study the Scriptures. And yes, we need to be more fervent in prayer and spend more time in prayer. And yes, folks, we need to assemble faithfully. We need to be together with each other. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we want to encourage you to become one. Before you leave tonight, make your soul right with God. As we've said before in the earlier services, two things can happen tonight that we don't know whether they'll happen or not. The Lord could come back. Do you believe that? Do you believe it's possible? The Lord could come back. I didn't say it would happen. I'm saying it could happen. It could. The Lord could come back. So here's the question. Seriously, ask yourself this question. If the Lord comes back tonight... Where do I stand with God? What's my outcome? If the Lord comes back tonight, am I going to heaven or am I going to hell? And if the answer is you're going to hell, let's do something about that. And the only thing we can do about it is obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, what does it mean to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, you've got to believe. And on the basis of that belief, that faith, you've got to repent of your former way of life. You've got to confess Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And yes, you have to be baptized into Christ. And that baptism is an immersion in water. It's not sprinkling as some denominations do. It's not pouring as some denominations do. And we're not picking on denominations, but we want to do what the Lord says. And the Bible, when it talks about baptism, it's talking about immersion. And we've got a place to be immersed back here. We'll get you some water in about 30 minutes. But once we immerse you into that water, based on faith in the operation of God, according to Colossians 2, 11 through 12, something remarkable happens. The blood of Jesus washes away all of your sins. And when you come up out of that watery grave, of baptism. You're a new creature in Christ. God adds you to His church. And you're a faithful servant, a fit vessel to do His work. And then your whole life becomes not about how good of a teacher you are, how good a professor you are, how good of a doctor you are, how good a mechanic, how good of an engineer, how good of a manager, how good of a lawyer, whatever. No, no, no. Your whole life is about seeking and saving that which is lost. Why? Because Luke 19.10 says that Jesus, He came to this earth, left heaven, for the sole purpose of seeking and saving that which is lost, Luke 19.10. That becomes your life's work. And there's no more enjoyable, there's no more fruitful, there's no more productive, there's no more satisfying, and there's no more important work to be done on this side of the grave than to seek and to save that which is lost. If anyone is subject to that invitation, as we come forward, as we stand, as we say.